that. If he can create something out of nothing, he can make something beautiful out of your life and mine. Amen. <laughs> Brother Michael, thank you so much for sharing your gift of music, and Sarah as well. Um, and if you hadn't read in your bulletin, this evening at 7 o'clock, Michael will be here sharing a Vespers concert with us, and you'll hear more of his testimony. Powerful, powerful testimony. Um, I also do want to just give a special shout out to our young people, um, the, the, the Youth Rush. Uh, they've been door knocking for what, two weeks now, right? Two weeks now here, and then they'll spend another three weeks and then move on to another area, I think, in Salinas, is that right? Yeah, Salinas for another five weeks. And so thank you guys for your faithful energy, your faithful effort. But it's not just young people visiting us. Uh, it's the young people of our own church that I am so jazzed about. Um, maybe you knew, maybe you didn't know. But for the last two weeks, there has been something special called The Challenge. Uh, where young people have been coming three days a week for three hours a day doing a Bible boot camp. Amen. Yeah. And so I see some of them back there. And um, yeah, I want to keep praying for them. Keep them lifted up in prayer. They've got one more week to go. And hopefully next week we'll hear a little bit more of their testimonies from the week. So keep them in prayer. Keep their staff in prayer. Keep my wife in prayer because she's pushing really hard. Not for the baby, but uh, <laughs> not yet. Please not. <laughs> You know what I mean. Anyways, uh, one last shout out before we begin our message, and that is to all the fathers in this place. Fathers, grandfathers, spiritual fathers, great-grandfathers, amen. <laughs> we want to praise the Lord. Fa yes, father mentors, spiritual fathers. Uh, we want to praise the Lord for the gift of fatherhood, for the gift of that demonstration of his character through godly men like you. And so we, we want to praise you, uh, praise the Lord for what he's doing in you and through you, and may he continue to bless us through your ministry. Um, it, maybe you've been wondering, you saw the, the sermon title, Dealing with Difficult People, Part 1. It's not connected to Father's Day, uh, just so you know, it's not. <laughs> but I did want to give special affirmation to our fathers. Anyways, are you ready to study this morning? Yeah, let, let's pray together. Oh God, we know that you are our Father. You are the one who have, has created us. You are the one who has made us, and not we ourselves. So thank you for this divinely appointed rhythm where we can stop and remember that very truth. And God, as we seek you in your word, we're praying for practical instruction because you said that, that all scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Oh God, we pray that you would equip us. We pray that you would complete us through your word, that this bread of life would truly be words of life to us. I pray that if there are burdens of our hearts, distractions on our minds, that you would just lay those things aside as we seek you. Please send us your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, let the family say, amen. Amen. All right. So, dealing with difficult people, part one. Over the last few weeks, we've been doing a little mini-series, dealing with difficulties, parts one and two. Today is a little bit of an extension of that, okay? So we're going to, to really look at how is it that, um, that God has instructed us to deal with difficult people? Because, I mean, that's, that's such a very rare thing, right? That's such a very rare thing that we actually find difficult people in this world. And so 
in those rare instances, God wants us to be equipped for those very special, unique... Okay, you know what? <laughs> Anyways, <clears throat> let's go in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 6. Let's go there together. Ephesians chapter 6. We were here last week. We looked at how to deal with difficulties by taking up the heavenly arsenal. That's the armor of God. Amen? So we're going back to it, Ephesians chapter 6, because as I was recently studying this, it struck me where this whole discussion about the armor of God is placed. It's placed in a letter that's all about relationships. I don't know if you realize this, but when you, when you look through Ephesians chapter 6, uh, Paul is talking about how to be one because God has made us one with him. He's talked about a, a unity on a horizontal level that is built upon a unity on the vertical level made possible by the blood of Jesus. And then when you flip through the chapters, you, you find that, oh, in chapter 4, it's talking about walking in unity using spiritual gifts. In chapter 5, we're starting to talk about family relationships between husbands and wives. And then in chapter 6, parents and children, employers and employees, and in the flow of all of this discussion about relationships, Paul then brings up, all right, now let's talk about the armor of God. Why? Is it because Paul is shifting from scene one to scene two? He's like totally disconnecting those things? No, it's because he realizes that in the flow of relationships, there is spiritual battle going on. Can I get a witness? All right. No, no, seriously, look at it. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, just the verse itself. He says, For we do not wrestle against what? Flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We looked at this verse last week, and that word wrestle, it's the only place in the New Testament scripture where this Greek word is found. In, in other Greek literature by Plato, Aristotle, other, you know, of that time, it's used to describe hand-to-hand -hand combat where the object of the game, game if you want to call it, the object of the game was to pin your opponent by holding his neck down on the ground. Paul is using this image to say, look, we are wrestling. And it may feel like we're wrestling with flesh and blood, that is, between persons. But the truth of the matter is, there is a spiritual war going on, okay? And so, the, the, what, what Paul is saying is he's using this framework of relationships, saying, look, we struggle with this all the time. We're in the midst of, of fire, whether it's friendly fire, familial fire, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's warfare. But that warfare is not with flesh and blood. Remember that. That warfare is not with flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers. And so how can we be spiritually equipped for that? This acknowledgement of spiritual warfare is pulling the veil on the wrestling that takes place between persons because the truth of the matter is that Satan loves to trouble our lives by troubling our relationships. So maybe this, uh, maybe this title, Dealing with Difficult Persons, maybe that's a little bit of a misnomer. And maybe it's not necessarily that he or she is a difficult person, but we're having a difficult interaction. Does that make sense? Yeah? Maybe, you know, uh, six days out of the week, they're, they're perfectly wonderful people. <laughs> but there there's just happens to be this interchange, this exchange where it's very difficult. 
And so maybe they themselves, maybe that label is too strong of a word, but we're talking about difficult interactions. Are we okay? Are we on the same page today? Yeah? Okay. So how do we deal with those difficult interactions? And I would suggest that every piece of this armor that Paul continues to lay out, we looked at this more in detail last week, but I would suggest that every piece of this armor, if we truly took it up, it would guard our relationships. If we truly took up truth, that would guard our relationships. If we truly took up righteousness, personal integrity, we wouldn't stoop to the level of other people that, that are trying to take us down. Are, are you seeing what I'm talking about? Yeah? Uh, the, uh, the gospel of peace on our feet, we would move to people. We wouldn't stay still. Oh, they need to come to me. No, we would move to people. If we took the shield of faith, we would have confidence, not just in God, but confidence, believing the best about somebody. If we had the helmet of salvation, we would be sure of our own salvation and we would seek the salvation of other people. If we had the word of God, the sword of the spirit, we would be driven by the counsel of heavenly wisdom, not the counsel of this person who tells me I should say that. And then that last piece of armor, the praying above all things, praying always with all prayer. Even if we just took that one piece of armor, that would drastically change our difficult interactions. Wow, every piece of this armor uh, it has something to say about how to have guarded and healthy relationships. Today, what I want to look at is what the rest of Scripture might have to say about how do we actually stand strong in the Lord when it comes to, to fire from the relational level, when it comes to the warfare on the relational level, how can I stand strong in the Lord? And the key is to stand strong like the Lord. <laughs> To do it as he would do it. WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? And so what we're going to look at is the Christ-like example. We're going to find that the source of power, the source of strength in dealing with difficult interactions is going to come in being Christ-like. And so PowerPoint number one, if you're writing this stuff down, PowerPoint number one is the power of Christ-like composure. The power of Christ-like composure. And when I say composure, I'm talking about that outward sense of keeping things cool and in control. And all of that outward stuff, all of that outward control, it stems from having the mind of Christ. So what was the mind of Christ? Go with me to Philippians. You're in Ephesians right now? Go to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to take a look at some things that really drove the mind of Christ, the heart of Christ, that allowed him to stay cool, to stay composed this power of Christ-like composure. You're in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. When you're there, say amen. amen. All right. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. I'm reading from the New King James. The Bible says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now let's hear. What does, what does this mind look like, sound like, feel like? Verse 6. Who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of how much reputation? No reputation. In other words, Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew that he was God, but he didn't feel like he had to grasp for it, defend it. Instead, he did the very opposite and made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, what's the next three words? He humbled himself. Where does this 
uh, Christ-like composure come from? It comes first from willful humility. Willful humility. It's, it's very careful phrasing there. Willful humility. That's on purpose humility. Not accidental humiliation. Jesus chose humility. Now humility, let's get, let's get something straight. Humility is not self-deprecation. Nor is humility being a doormat. Amen? <laughs> humility, Christ-like humility, is being confident in my identity in God. Being so confident in that identity that I don't have to grasp for it. Being so confident in that identity that I don't have to become defensive. Being so confident that I've chosen this humility and now I can choose to serve. That's what willful humility, that's what Christ-like humility is. This is what drove Christ's composure. There's another one. Go with me to uh, the little book called First Peter. It's towards the end. So if you're in Philippians, turn a little bit to the right. You'll pass the T-zone, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus. Then you'll get to Philemon and Hebrews. After Hebrews, there's James. Then there's First and Second Peter. So go with me to First Peter. First Peter chapter 2. We're still asking ourselves, where does Christ-like composure come from? This, this PowerPoint number one. It comes from, one, willful humility, but here's another one. First Peter chapter 2. Notice how it describes Jesus' posture. All right. If you're there, say amen. All right. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21. Remember, this is coming from the mouth of Peter. Okay. Do you remember who Peter was? Uh, yeah, yeah, outspoken, Mr. Not Willful Humility, okay? This, this is Peter who, uh, you know, he lashed out. He, he tried to defend not just himself, but Christ himself. And so, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. And we'll read 21 through 23, I think. All right, verse 21, the Bible says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us what? An example, okay, so whatever Peter's going to outline here for us about Jesus is actually applicable to the example that we should follow. All right, so what is that example? That you should follow his steps, verse 22, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. Retaliation was not part of Jesus' mental vocabulary. Let me read that. Okay, verse 23. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Oh, that last phrase, that is so key. How did Jesus not retaliate? Oh, man. When they put a crown of thorns on him, how did he not just like create some sort of gigantic uh, man-eating plant? Right there? I, I don't know. How Jesus held it back? Because he could have. He could have called legions of angels down. But he did not. Why? Last, verse of, or last phrase of verse 23. But committed himself to him who judges righteously. What drove Jesus' composure? I would say this. Deferred justice. Deferred justice. It's an attitude check on personal defensiveness. It's when we're right that we can do the most wrong. And Jesus realizes, look, I may be right, but I'm going to give up my rights. <laughs> can you, I don't know if you can fathom that. 
But according to Peter, this is an example for us to follow. We may be right, but it's in those moments that we should be willing to give up our rights. Why? Because it's when we're right that we can do the most wrong. Have you been there? Maybe you've been that difficult person. Uh-oh. <laughs> right? And here, when we're, when we're dealing with difficult persons or difficult interactions, oh, friends, defer justice to God. Commit that to God. That's where Christ's composure came from. It came from, A, willful humility. B, deferred justice. It's when we lose our outward composure that we inwardly refuse to trust God with the just outcomes. Did you follow that? We lose our outward composure when we inwardly refuse to trust God with the outcomes. Jesus did the opposite. He trusted God with the outcomes and he was able to maintain outward composure. He was willfully humble. He deferred justice. But I would say this also, this is what drove his composure, everlasting love. <laughs> or maybe another word, enduring love. Go with me to John 13. Another familiar story, John 13. This was a time where Jesus knew he was about to head into the gauntlet of difficult persons. Before he did, he had one last supper with his friends, but they were being difficult too. John 13. When you're there, say, I'm there. John chapter 13, fourth book of the New Testament. Look at these glimpses of Christ-like composure. John chapter 13, verse 1. It reads, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, what did he do? He loved them as long as he could handle it. <laughs> he loved them to the end. This is enduring love. Uh, notice that the rest of the verses, verse 2, it says, And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus knew he was surrounded by people who had run from him. He was surrounded by people who would betray him. And this was supposed to be his time to, to get away before he runs through the gauntlet of Pilate and Herod and Pilate again and then the Roman soldiers, etc., etc. But even his closest friends were being difficult. And Jesus, knowing that the Father, this is verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going to God, there's that sense of identity. He rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. And now that enduring love is not just inward, he's now showing it. This is what I'm going to do for you anyway. Enduring love, love for other people, this is what keeps Christ cool. <laughs> this is what keeps Christ composed. Why? Because self-love is the thing that starts fights. James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 1, you write it down. Where does Wars and strife come from? It comes from love of self. That's where it comes from. James chapter 4, verse 1. So the opposite must be true. Persistent concern for others' well-being, that is what will calm fights, and that is what will turn fights into favor. Self-love starts it. Genuine, Christ-like love, enduring love. 
quells it. Amen. You've heard that phrase, right? Love wins, period. <laughs> it does. Love wins. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. Amen. So this is the power of Christ-like composure. That's PowerPoint number one. Christ-like composure is built upon willful humility, on deferring justice to God with the just outcomes, and an enduring love, a love that goes to the end. Praise the Lord for Christ-like love. <laughs> All right, that's PowerPoint number one. PowerPoint number two, you ready? PowerPoint number two, where do we find strength in dealing with difficult people? It's the power of Christ-like communication. The power of Christ-like communication. So we're, we've already talked about Christ-like composure, now we're talking about Christ-like communication. And so when it comes to how we communicate, before we even start about talking about uh, what to say, let's talk about what is heard. All right, you've heard that phrase, um, it's, in the, it's in James actually, be slow to speak, be swift to listen, right? Be slow to speak, be swift to listen. Before we talk about what is said, let's talk about what is heard, because this is Jesus' mode of operation. If you haven't noticed it, when you read through the Gospels, when someone encounters him, when someone tries to trap him with a question, what does Jesus naturally do first? He asks them a question. Have you noticed that? Jesus asks them a question to get them talking. Why does Jesus do this? Is he just playing mental games? No. Because his mode of operation is to listen first. Amen. When you're dealing with difficult people, make it a principle. Listen first. You know, I, I recently read a communication skills book. And, and uh, it, its suggestion, it, this was coming from a, a non-Christian, just a secular perspective, but I believe it's biblical, in this, that it suggested before you speak, feel from the other side. Did you hear that? So it's not just listening to what is heard or listening to what is said, but actually feeling what is said. Feel that from the other side. Put yourself in the shoes of that person before you even begin to say your own piece. This was Jesus' mode of operation. He demonstrated this. The first place he demonstrated this is in the Garden of Eden. The first case of difficult people, right? What does God do when he comes into the midst of the garden? What's his first thing? Where? are you? Why? So he could get them to tell their story. Jesus' mode of operation is to always listen first, and it ought to be ours as well. When Jesus was before Pilate, Pilate's questioning him, and Jesus says, did somebody tell you this, or did you come up this, with this yourself? Why? Not because he's playing mental games, because he wants to hear Pilate's heart. Jesus was putting himself in a position of a listener. This is Jesus' mode of operation. In fact, go with me to Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 18. This is not just, uh, you know, the divine example. This is something, something that we are to take up as well. Proverbs chapter 18. Proverbs chapter 18, penned by one who is known as the wisest man who ever lived, right? Proverbs chapter 18, let's, let's look for some wisdom here. Proverbs is kind of halfway through your Bible, it's after the book of Psalms. When you're there, say amen. amen. Okay, Proverbs chapter 18, we're going to take a look at verse 2 and verse 13. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 2. A fool has no delight in understanding, 
but in expressing whose heart? <laughs> His own heart. Oh, boy. All right. Do, do you hear what the, the wise man is saying here? He's saying that the fool doesn't even care to listen. So the wise thing to do would be to listen. Do you follow? Yes or no? Yeah? A fool has no delight in understanding, but in, in expressing his own heart. How about verse 13? Verse 13. The Bible says, He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. How many of you have been in a difficult interchange? And all you're thinking about, while that other person is going at it, all you're thinking about is what you're going to say to get that. Okay, that's not listening first. <laughs> you may be quiet, but you're not feeling from the other side. You need to, I keep saying you, we, <laughs> Woo, we need to. <laughs> we need to do this where it comes to our natural mode of operation to listen first. And that comes with, with recognizing that we may not have all the answers there may be something that I need to know and understand before I see the full picture. So, uh, Christ-like communication starts with what is heard. Listening first. Do you follow yes or no? Yeah? Okay. How about this? Christ-like communication is not just about what is heard, but it's about what is said. It's about what is said. Go with me to the New Testament again, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians. I hope it's okay. We're flipping through the Bible today. Is that all right? Ephesians chapter 4, back to the New Testament. Paul, again, he's writing to a church who's dealing and struggling with difficult relationships. Ephesians chapter 4, he's wanting to bring them together. He gives them some practical counsel about what to say. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. When you're there, say, I found it before the pastor. All right. Someone told me last week, that they heard a preacher saying, if you haven't found it, say, Lord, help me. <laughs> All right, Ephesians chapter 4. If you're there, say, I'm there. Okay, verse 29, the Bible says this, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Oh, friends, we could take a whole weekend seminar just on this verse alone. Let no corrupt word. That word corrupt, it's toxic, poisonous. You're thinking to yourself, I don't have poisonous words. Come. Well, poisonous is put in contrast to words that are good for necessary edification. Do you know what edification is? An edifice, an edifice is a building. Edification is building one another up. So if our words are not intended to build one another up, they're toxic. If our words are not intended to strengthen one another, they're poisonous and lethal. Let me suggest a couple of filters when we're thinking about what to say. <laughs> Ask yourself two simple questions. Will this give grace to the hearer? And two, is this for necessary edification? The question about grace, is this going to give grace? That's appropriate motivation. Okay, that's, that's, that's probing the motivation behind your words. The, the question about necessary edification, that's probing the timing of your words. 
Think about this. This person may need to hear it, but they may not need to hear it now. You know, the, the state of their heart, the way that their emotions are up and down right now, the things that they've been going through, hey, there might be a better time to say your piece. Okay? Even if it is meant to build them up, they may not be in a position. I've been there. I've done that. Well, thank you for that kind criticism and feedback. I'll get to that two weeks from now when I'm in a position where I can listen to that. Do you understand what I mean? Okay, maybe I'm the only one that goes through that. <laughs> Necessary edification. What I love about Jesus is how he exemplifies this in the most extreme circumstances. Think about the things that he said under the most painful duress and stress. On the way to the cross, he turns to some weeping women and he says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. He's not just concerned about his well-being, he's concerned about their well-being. On the cross, on the cross, nailed to the cross, he prays, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He's giving grace even to those who are robbing him of grace. On the cross, he's able to identify his, his mournful mother, and he says, woman, behold your son, behold your mother. Do you remember that interchange? He actually says to John, look, take care of her, please. He is concerned about others' well-being, even under the most painful of circumstances. Think about this. What are the first things that come out of your mouth when you are pained? When you stub your toe, boom, oh! what are you saying? You're not thinking about feeding somebody else or helping somebody else across the street. You're, what? And here's Jesus under most extreme pain, and the only thing he can think about is, are they going to be saved? Wow. You know that phrase, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If we were to take a barometer of what was on Jesus' heart, just by the things he said, we would see amazing grace. The things he said were always intended to give grace. They were always intended to build the other up. Wow. And this comes from recognizing, I would say, recognizing that there's a spiritual warfare going on. Jesus was willing not to let people off the hook, but when he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do, you know, I've often th thought to myself, of course they knew what they were doing. But Jesus understood that there was a spiritual warfare going. He, he was wrestling not with flesh and blood. There was something else, someone else behind the scenes. And Jesus was willing to recognize that and to pray against that. And so when you're wondering, how, how am I supposed to be able to do that? How can I give grace-filled, building up words when I don't really feel like it? Well, remember, we're not wrestling with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. So in that sense, seek the lost. Amen? Use your words to save. Use your words to impart grace, life-giving grace. And so we may not be able to, to excuse other people's poor choices or destructive behavior, but we can choose to take the high road by seeking and speaking to their eternal well-being. What else? What other ways did Christ communicate? Um, I would say that he used um, 
there's a proverb, Proverb 15.1. It's not just what he said, but how he said it. Uh, we, we don't get that from the text itself. We, we, we just kind of see the words, but if we were to imagine his tone of voice, I believe Jesus used a Christ-like manner, a humble manner of speaking. Um, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1, just write it down. It says, a soft answer turns away wrath. Have you heard that before? A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. In other words, if you are receiving a barrage of verbal abuse, guess what? You don't have to give it back. Why? Because a soft answer will actually quell that fire too. Harsh response, however, will only stir it up even more. Jesus, when he's being reviled on the cross, hey, you said you're the son of man. You said you're the son of David. Why don't you come down from the cross? And there he is praying for them. <laughs> One thief is saying, hey, if you're the son of God, why don't you save yourself and us? The other thief says, don't you know <laughs> who this is? And he addresses him as Lord. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. This thief knew he was a king. And Jesus says, hey, you'll be with me in paradise. Praise God. Today, on this day when I don't even look like a king, today, I assure you, you'll be with me in paradise. Oh. So it's not just what is heard or what is said, but it's also how it's said. A soft answer will turn away wrath. <clears throat> the last thing about Christ-like communication I want to hit on is not just what is heard, what is said, or how it's said, but to whom it's said. Is it okay that we're getting practical today? Amen. Man, to whom it's said. Maybe I would even around, uh, uh, add this, around whom it's said. Go with me to Matthew. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. When it comes to difficult interactions, our tongue, like James, the book of James says, our tongue can cause fires. <laughs> but Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gives us some plain and very practical instruction about how to communicate. Christ-like communication involves what is heard, what is said, how it's said, but also to whom it is said. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. When you're there, say amen. amen. Okay. Matthew 18, verse 15. It says this. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, in other words, if there's, if there's someone who just offends you, if there's someone who actually hurts you, if your brother sins against you, Jesus says, go and tell everybody else about his fault so that everybody can be against him. Do you, do you, yeah, wrong Bible, okay. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell who? Go tell him. Go and tell him his fault. Remember, take those other principles of, uh, you know, corrupt words versus good words, right? Edifying words versus non-edifying words. Take, take those other principles about how it's said. Don't just go blast, you know, lay a bomb down and say, this is what you did to me. No, no, no. Do all those things in a Christ-like way. It says, go and tell him his fault. But notice how specific this is. Between you and him alone. Why would Jesus be concerned about that? 
Why? Because the truth of the matter is that a hurt relationship within a community actually hurts the community. So why broaden the sphere of that hurt unnecessarily? Jesus is instructing us, take care of it between the persons involved. It's a principle of direct address. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Excuse me, do you understand what Jesus is talking about? It's the principle of direct address. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Praise God. Some of us may find yourselves um, as innocent bystanders of, of people sharing thoughts about others that, um, that are really not in line with this direct address principle. Have you ever been there? Okay, yeah? And in those cases, I would encourage you to encourage your brother and sister to redirect their address. Does that make sense? You're in a scenario where you're hearing a complaint or, or a sense of disgruntledness about something that was done to offend. And yes, you want to sympathize. Yes, you want to, you know, to not just ignore it. But you would do your brother or sister a favor by taking them by the hand even and building the bridge yourself. Or just encouraging them saying, hey, look, I, I hear what you're saying. And I, I would just really encourage you to address the individual himself or herself. Why? Why? Because you want to gain a brother. You want to gain a sister. You don't want to create a sense of isolationism. You don't want to, to make somebody stand on an island of, of being like, criticized when they have no idea that they're on that island. Do you realize that our words have that power? And so Jesus is giving us some very practical uh, instruction here. And you know what? This isn't, uh, I guess, like when Jesus is saying these these instructions, I'm not sure like who it is that you're thinking about in those difficult interactions or those difficult persons that you're wanting to apply these principles with. Maybe it's, uh, you know, with you and a coworker. Maybe it's you and a classmate. Maybe it's you and a fellow church member. Friends, seek one another out. And gain a brother. Gain a sister. Maybe it's within your own household. Maybe you're no longer living together, but it's a brother or a sister, literally, biologically. Hey, take them by the hand. Encourage them to directly address one another. All these principles, all these principles, it can be applied in in parenting, you know, those difficult relationships there. (laughs) It happens, right? It can be applied in our church relationships, our fellowship, or interaction. It can be applied at work, school, all of these things. Friends, take this up. Take this up. And Jesus is saying, look, this, this actually gains a brother. Some of the worst things that we can hear is a, a well-meaning criticism, but it starts out like this. Well, people are saying that dot, dot, dot. Right? Why, why is that hard? Why is that hard to swallow? Because, because we don't know who is saying that, and there's no, it doesn't offer 
a substantive option for actually healing and correcting that. When, we, when, when it's an anonymous, they are saying this or that. Well, it may just be one or two persons that are saying this, but now we feel the whole world is against us. That is not edifying the person who's hearing it. Are we following today, yes or no? Yeah? In other words, look, when, when all these things happen, whether it's directly involving us or not directly involving us, let's encourage one another to follow the principles of Christ-like communication. You may just kind of be a hands-off person saying, hey, look, look, la, 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 <laughs> you know? That, that, that's one route. That's one route. The other route is to be a bridge builder and say, hey, come, come, please, let's pray. <laughs> okay. So that's Christ-like communication. You know, a question as I was studying this uh, that popped into my mind was like, man, this is a lot. <laughs> and I asked God, God, do you really expect us to do this? <laughs> I mean, why should I bend over backwards? Go through all this trouble because it's uncomfortable. You know, some personalities are all about this. Oh, yeah, I, I remember an individual who says, oh, I love conflict. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, oh, yeah, you go, boy. <laughs> yeah, that was my former youth pastor. He says, I love conflict. And so, he, yeah, he just enjoyed that stuff. Me, on the other hand, I would rather run. I would rather avoid it. I'm a smiley guy. I, may, I like to make sure others smile, too. If I'm, if I'm in a room where it doesn't feel like that, that smile is genuine, I'd rather just kind of slip into the background, okay? But God is giving us some practical instruction for actually making these difficult interactions, excuse me, engaging these difficult interactions to find peace and reconciliation. Why should we do this? Why should we bend over backwards? And as I was asking God that question, he reminded me that Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, comes right after verses 12 through 14. And in verses 12 through 14, Jesus tells a parable of the lost sheep. Jesus tells a parable that if there's a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and one sheep goes way over, wanders far, far away, what's that shepherd going to do? He's going to leave the 99 and he's going to go run and do whatever it takes to regain that sheep. Why should we bend over backwards? Because it's the way of Christ. It's the way of Christ. And I would also say this. The truth is that our horizontal relationships affect our vertical relationship. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, he says, look, if you're bringing your gift to the altar and you remember that someone has an ought against you. In other words, you have offended somebody else. You owe an apology to somebody else. Leave your gift at the altar, go reconcile with your brother, and then come and worship. Why? Because the quality of our horizontal relationships directly impacts the genuineness of our vertical relationship. In other words, it's not an option for the follower of Christ. It's not an option. Difficult interactions, difficult persons, they may not be solvable in an instant, but we cannot run from them. I need to hear this, okay? We cannot run from them. So why does God go through all the trouble to dealing with difficult humanity, rebellious humanity, stiff-necked humanity? Why does God go through all that trouble? It's because God is love. And so, 
if I am beholding the Lamb of God, who demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, if that's the one I'm following, then that's the one I'm going to reflect. That while others may be difficult toward me, I'm going to be loving toward them. Amen. <laughs> For the follower of Christ, dealing with difficult people is not an option. For the follower of Christ, the one who is born of love will reach and reconcile as far as in our power to do. <clears throat> so, when it comes to dealing with difficult persons, what is God calling you to do? When it comes to Christ-like composure or Christ-like communication, what is it that God is calling us to find strength in today, this week? You're thinking right now, you're thinking, oh, there's this difficult interaction. It's at home. How am I going to employ willful humility with my son or daughter? How am I going to defer justice in that difficult employee-employer relationship? What can, how can I find strength to actually keep loving to the end? Wow. And keep my cool and composure. Okay? You're thinking about this and how you can apply this stuff. Maybe it's some level of communication. Maybe someone is saying, look, I'm going to commit to listen. I'm going to commit to listen first, even before I speak. Maybe you're realizing that some words that you've shared this week, they weren't necessary. Woo! <laughs> So what can I do? What can I do? Build a bridge. Leave your gift at the altar. Let me go reconcile. Remember, this is Jesus' mode of operation. This is, Jesus, this is Christ's example, and this is the example that he left for us to follow. You know, next week, uh, we're, we're going to be experiencing communion. He wants us to address the horizontal relationship before the vertical. That's why foot washing comes before the Last Supper. Foot washing is all about being able to do this. Come together here so I can come together here. I thought about saving this for communion Sabbath. But I figured that doesn't happen in 30 seconds. <laughs> and so I want to appeal. For those of you who are planning on being here for communion Sabbath, even if you're not, Seek to reconcile where it's needed. Find strength in Christ-like composure. Find strength in Christ-like communication. Maybe there's some direct address that you have been indirect with and you need to refocus it. Maybe you need to love to the end and the demonstration of that love will be, brother, can I wash your feet? What is it for you? I hope you're hearing the Holy Spirit speaking. Friends, I want Parkwood to be a church family that doesn't just talk love, but shows it. I want Parkwood to be a church family that is prepared to stand before God in the great day. And how can we prepare for eternity to be spent with neighbors that we don't want to talk to? <laughs> oh, Lord, have mercy. God is calling us to love, not just to tolerate. 
How can we do it? I realize that this is a sensitive thing and, and this is something for much prayer and supplication. And so I want to pray together as we close. Maybe you have a special need and you actually want to meet with the prayer team that meets back here after the service. But as we, as we bow our heads, let's, let's lift these burdens up to God. Oh, Father, we recognize today that, that your word is so practical and pointed at times. And like a double-edged sword, God, you read the motives of the heart. And Father, first, we just want to confess our deep need for Jesus. Oh God, we want to confess that we have not been Christ-like. And so Lord, pour out mercy. Pour out grace, not just to cover the past, but to transform the present. Oh God, please, Give us Christ-like composure. Give us Christ-like communication. This is only possible by the power of Christ living in us. So please, Lord, take the throne of our hearts. You know those interactions. You know those difficulties. Maybe it's as fresh as this week. Maybe it's as old as last decade. Oh God, please heal and forgive. Please reach and reconcile. Please redeem to the fullest extent and use us not to get in the way of that process. Use us to seek and save that which is lost in our own sphere, whether in the household, whether in the workplace, whatever the relationship, God. And so we surrender this to you. We know that your Holy Spirit is, is just beginning to work this work in us, and so we thank you in advance for the ways that you're going to bring about reconciliation. Oh, Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' saving name, let the family say, Amen. 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 Again, I want to invite you to spend some special time in prayer if it's needed, and also fellowship with us in the fellowship hall. God bless you guys. <clears throat>